Athens or Jerusalem? Neither. This is Heart of the Matter. It's The Long Show. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and in The Long Show, we pray together, even though it's online. Let's do it, Lord. We pray that you'll bless us and help us to understand your will and ways and help the concepts presented to be of benefit to people who are seeking to grow and understand you, your son, and their relationship uh, to this world. We pray that you'll bless uh, Mags and Wendy who are getting this ready and and uh, preparing the program to go out digitally. And we pray that you'll bless their efforts and uh, be with those who are seeking truth. And we say this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are approaching a time when we are going to radically change our approach to matters in the ministry for the better in my estimation. Before we do, I want to step back and talk about something that's important to me uh, as a means to just wrap it up in the best way I possibly can. I've mentioned it before, but not too much. A number of years ago, right in this very building where we're taping this, I sat here and we called this gathering of people, the place was packed, the Inquisition. And what it was, was the local church leaders uh, coming in and uh, talking publicly about my refusal of the thing called creedal Trinitarianism. And at one point, a pastor who's a Calvinist in the area, he stood up and he made a challenge before he walked away from the mic. He said, you need to study your Greek is what he said, uh, or he, uh, I'm not sure he said your Greek. He may have said, you need to study the Greeks or uh, uh, Greek history. I can't remember. I assume that he meant uh, uh, study Greek language, but also the culture is the way that he kind of put it. The Greek way of seeing the word, the world, which I am going to borrow from Kierkegaard and say, call that Athens. He was saying, you should study Athens. And I understand the need to study the apostolic record from uh, the Greek language because it does add insight to the English translations that we have. But if this pastor was suggesting that I should study up on the Greek world and the Greek mindset as a means to be more reasonable and um uh, aesthetically driven as a human being in my understanding of the Word of God, he is wasting his time. On the other hand, there's a huge body of believers who say no to Athens. They say, absolutely, who cares what is Greek, as it were? They say Jerusalem. So we're comparing and contrasting Athens, the mindset, and Jerusalem. And these people who say Jerusalem only typically are biblical literalists, usually the King James, and due to the presence of their own need for zeal, and they're influenced by like-minded teachers, they take the Hebrew written Bible and they take the uh, apostolic record and they assign it to themselves and to other people as if it was written verbatim to them today. They represent Jerusalem. There's Greeks who use reason and logic, and there is Jerusalem that represents this is written, this is how it is. They actually believe that the Bibles that they hold in their hands today were written to them today, now, and everything in it has direct literal application uh, to them. Now, uh, 
So their perspective is the law. Their perspective is the written word. Their perspective is everything that God has said to the people in ancient Israel, to the believers in the early church. And they say, you take that now and you live by it. And just as I understand the benefit of reading the apostolic record in the Greek to aid comprehension, I understand the the benefit of looking at a Jerusalem devotion to the word of God and, and assigning principles to our lives as believers. But, um, to make the Jerusalem ethic, as I've described it, um, the way you operate, I say no to that as well. The reason is God said, there will come a time when I will write my laws on your heart and mind. That's a very different approach to a religious walk than um, Athens or Jerusalem. Now, there's a guy, his name's Soren Kierkegaard, and he's a super influential Christian philosopher, uh, both in my life and the life of many people over the years. And he had some real issues with um, Athens and Jerusalem and the conflict between them two. Uh, unfortunately, his resolution between Athens and Jerusalem mindset is not something I agree with. And we'll talk about what that resolution was, but we can learn an awful lot from his deeply personal study of the difference between an Athenian mindset and that of Jerusalem. And uh, the insights of, of Soren Kierkegaard go, al- I almost said Corin Kierkegaard, the insights of uh, Soren Kierkegaard go a long way to help us comprehend the issues that exist between pastors who are uh, re- reasoning, they reason, they, ch- they choose human reason over uh, elements of written uh, principles of faith, okay? So it's almost like the intellectual versus the law-driven, Athens, Jerusalem. Athenian reason versus Jerusalem ethics. That's how Kierkegaard broke it down. His philosophy, Kierkegaard's, was in direct relationship to a man who came before him named Hegel. And uh, I used to glom onto Hegel in his philosophy because it made so much systematic sense to me when I studied philosophy. We had a history of philosophers that came about going all the way back 400 years before Christ. And you start with Paramedes and Heraclitus and you start with all these philosophers and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and you start to go on and on and on and all the way up to Hegel, everybody's said, this is the way to live your life. Philosophy, this is how to live your life, right? This is the way, the one way. Well, Hegel comes along And he says, no, I have the final solution, no pun intended, to all of this philosophical uh, demands, okay? And he said that instead of there being one right philosophy in the world, that there was an ongoing process that he described as the dialectic or the, uh, the, uh, the, and so what he, this is how Hegel said. He said, instead of one philosophy being right from Descartes or from Kant or from any of these people, he said, this is what's really happening. Someone presents a statement, a philosophy, 
And, and I've talked about this before, and that's their thesis statement. Somebody else reads or hears the thesis statement, and they say, I'm going to present an antithesis to that thesis statement, something opposite. One person says everything in the world is about black. This philosopher comes along and says, no, my antithesis statement is everything in the world is about white. And those two fight against each other in conflict. That's called the dialectic. And in that conflict, those two positions, a thesis and an antithesis, they create a synthesis, which might be the world operates in gray. Okay, you have one say black, you have one say white, they fight. And now the new synthesis says everything is gray in the world. That synthesis in Hegelian dialectics then becomes the new thesis statement. Everything in the world is gray. And then someone comes along and says, no, I'm going to fight against that with an antithesis. And they present it, you see. And so what Hegel did was he said that this process was the means by which everything would be established. All right. And, 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 um, and so that became the new philosophy, okay? And the problem with it, according to Kierkegaard, who came afterward, was that it was too smug. It was too perfect of a a solution. It was too formulaic. It was not going to be the final solution uh, for everybody on philosophy. And Kierkegaard hated Hegel's dialectic even though it makes so much sense to me at the time when I studied it. It was far too rigid, demanding, and systematic, and too certain and too concrete with putting an end to all philosophical statements and implementing a system which you would put philosophy into uh, come out the end of this machine called Hegelian dialectic. So in the end for Kierkegaard, Hegel's system was too Greek. It was too Promethean. According to Michael Spurge, Princeton PhD, it was not enough Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Kierkegaard said, I hate Hegel because there's no Jerusalem in it. It's all Athenian. It's all about logic and reason and the system he gave us instead of there being anything about God's will or Jerusalem. Not enough faith is presented, too much reason. So to Kierkegaard, Hegel's reconciliation of the two was far too pat, too dogmatic, and most importantly, was not consistent with what Kierkegaard experienced as an individual. Now you have to understand Kierkegaard's influence over me has to do with his view of subjectivism, of how the individual has to come in to that Hegelian system that's so lockstep and that it has to contribute to, that there has to be something about the the individual that is going to help make sense or nonsense of this system. So Kierkegaard saw it as a problem when, sees it as a problem or saw it as a problem, when you mix Athens and Jerusalem, when you mix Greek, humanism, rationality, and reason, 
with the strictly understood tenets of biblical faith. All right? So just understand that about Kierkegaard now. He says, no way. There's way too much mixing here going on. So he sought to reformulate this problem that started with Augustine or before. And that was the reconnecting of faith, Jerusalem, and reason, Athens. And that was Kierkegaard's mindset. I want to see if we can figure out how this really should look when we try to understand God. How much is reason? How much is faith? Right? And in his eyes, in the mixing of the two, it was not good. That's what he concluded. So he stripped away in his mind all of Athens. He said, no, we are not going to allow in our pursuit and relationship with God through Christ any reason, any type of systematic lockstep processes. We are not going to use the Greek Athenian mindset. We are going to fully embrace Jerusalem. Okay? And so... uh, We are going, and in the end, what that looked like for Kierkegaard was to say, we are all going to live lives like Job, where Job says, whatever God says I do, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to try to reason with it. I'm not going to try to argue with God. I'm going to accept it by faith. God is right. I will follow Jerusalem mentality. Many philosophers came along in the past and they had tried to approach faith, Jerusalem, by mixing uh, Athenian wisdom in with it. And that, to, to Kierkegaard, was a mixing up of Hegelian's dialectic. He didn't like those two working against themselves. And for man's uh, wisdom and reason to mix with Jerusalem and come up with a new thesis statement. He didn't say that was of any benefit. Uh, Forget the thesis, antithesis, and the synthesis. Kierkegaard said, no way, Jose. All people have to make a choice if they're Athens or if they're Jerusalem. That's, that's, That's what you have to do. Do we look to nature, Athens, for ontological understanding of things? That's how we know things. Or do we look to the immaterial, the metaphysical, or what people call God and his law or demands? Which do you look to is what Kierkegaard uh, came up with. All right. And choose between naturalistic ontologies, reason, logic, and metaphysical ontologies, Jerusalem, belief, faith, says Kierkegaard, but don't mix them together. Do not, you either walk by Athens or you walk by Jerusalem. Between religious faith and rational certainty, you make the choice. A problem arises when we enter into defending one of these views or the other And it happens because of what Kierkegaard said was presuppositional standing. Meaning, if you believe in Jerusalem 
mindset, you already have established a presuppositional, you've presupposed that your belief in the Jerusalem ethic is valid. And if you come and say Athens is the way to live your life, reason and logic, you've already presupposed in your mind that that has value. And through those presuppositional thoughts, you devalue the approach that you are trying to defend. So if you suppose that the Bible is inerrant, that God's word is perfect, you will arrive and justify faith as your ontology. And so people, according to Kierkegaard, have to make a decision, everybody in their life. Will you walk in your life through your own reason, your own logic, or will you walk through your life through faith, through Jerusalem, what God says, between human conception of living or living God's conception of living? The problem is while most will make a choice, while most will make a choice for one or the other, they really can't explain why they make that choice. And if you ask them, why are you someone who lives by faith? Or why are you someone who lives by reason? Why are you someone who lives by your own will? Versus why are you someone who lives apparently by God's will? No one can effectively explain that to another person. When they try, they borrow from what Kierkegaard called presuppositional arguments, which invalidates the stance that, of, that they support. I want to suggest that we can slip into what's called a Cartesian from Rene Descartes' state of mind, and that through a tremendous amount of focus and energy, that a human being can deconstruct their presuppositions, rid themselves of all that they have presupposed to be true, and then return back to a state of uh, not knowing to then building upon either accepting reason and or faith. And I think that that is uh, something God has given us. Now, that goes against what Kierkegaard would describe. It's something I've attempted to do in my own life in the quiet hours and decades of personal contemplation to deconstruct what I come to the table with in terms of presuppositional arguments. It's very hard to do, and I'm not sure I've been successful. But if, if I come to the table with a presupposition and I say I'm walking by faith, I choose the Bible, I choose Jerusalem, but I come to the table and I say, oh yeah, there's a hell and everyone's going to burn in it then I have to say, is that presuppositional on my part? Has someone taught me that? Have I read the Bible and learned to see it through eyes of things people have taught me? And I have to admit to myself, I have. So get rid of that notion. Don't say it's not right, but don't say it's right. And see if you can open your eyes up to another way of understanding without those presuppositional arguments in place. So, um, well before my paltry attempts to uh, do this, the genius of Kierkegaard pursued the same. And to simplify his conclusions, he believed that we could assess human desires in two ways. Those that are oriented 
toward what he called an ascetic life, A-E-S-T-H, ascetic life. Um, and that would be synonymous with people who pursue pleasure. Okay, Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Kierkegaard said you can pursue the ascetic life. That's Athens. So just remember ascetic Athens. Pleasure. Or you could be someone who pursues um, the ethical life. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, when it comes to somebody who pursues the ascetic life, the Athenian life, Kierkegaard said, listen, I'm not just talking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There are people who find great pleasure in intellectualism. They'd never cheat on their wife. They'd never get drunk or high. Uh, They'd never go to a, a rock concert or anything. But they find pleasure in the intellectualism of reason. Or they find pleasure in the visiting of art galleries. Or they find pleasure in some sort of activity that has nothing to do with Jerusalem. That's what he said are people who pursue the ascetic life, the Athenian life. They pursue pleasures, whatever makes you happy. So even if you are a teetotaling, faithful to your spouse, never done anything wrong or pleasurable, you're monastic actually in your physical uh, traits, but you love intellectualizing arguments and you find pleasure in that, he would say you're an esthete, that you're aesthetically driven and you just love the pleasure of this life. That's how he uh, described it. Got it? So he points out it's entirely possible for someone seeking pleasure, they can get it in any way. He wisely observed, which is in harmony with scripture, that the ascetically driven life is our nature. That's human nature. When we are born, we are naturally seeking after baby food. And we are naturally seeking after comfort and warmth. And and what we want is ours. And we have to understand that that is just a natural state. And Kierkegaard, pulling from the Bible, I think, he clearly articulates that the pleasure-driven, pleasure-seeking, Athenian life of reason, logic, is, is all natural. Okay? So there's no choice in making it. It just comes about. All right? Born into it. Kierkegaard believes that all people have to choose between these natural desires, what scripture calls the carnal man, uh, and to go after what he says is the ethical life. So we have the ascetic life, Athenian, and we have the ethical life, Jerusalem. And the ethical life is the human alternative, not the mixing of, but the alternative of our natural want, desire to be intellectually astute, logical, reasonable, pleasurable, seeking people. And so you have to say, I'm going to turn from the ascetic, natural-driven propensities, and I'm going to seek after the ethical. He describes the ethical life as someone who pursues moral righteousness. Okay, stay with me. Independent of pleasure. 
Moral righteousness is the pursuit after things that do not necessarily make us happy. In fact, Kierkegaard was huge on moral righteousness, uh, including suffering. So we see on the Athenian side, the pursuit of pleasure in whatever way it comes. On the ethical side, which is pursuing moral righteousness, which to Kierkegaard was pursuing God, you're in pursuit of personal suffering. That's how he broke up uh, Athens and Jerusalem and the aesthetic life and the ethical life. And, and, And he says, people have to choose which one they're going to pursue. The ethical woman, the ethical man, follows the laws of God for moral righteousness for their own sake. He he or she doesn't follow them because they make the most sense. He or she doesn't follow them because they can garner points from God for, for obeying him. They choose ethical life and moral righteousness because that is what God said. Period. There's no reason included for their choosing the ethical life or Jerusalem. In this way, Kierkegaard aligns himself with Kant as he struggles to navigate between all these desperate elements lingering between Athenian principles and Jerusalem principles when a person is deciding how to live life. Remember, he's a philosopher, and that's the study, how to live life. For Kierkegaard, it was how to live a Christian life. And this is how he's broken it up. Now you can see he's borrowing from a lot from Scripture. But where Kant, German philosopher Kant, I think he was German, he unites the aesthetic and the ethical. And that's what most Christians do, is they say, no, I'm going to take my reason and my logic, and I'm going to mix it in with Jerusalem and the ethic to be morally righteous based on what God says, but I'm going to use my mind to do it. Kierkegaard divides them completely. He draws a super thick black line between those two and promotes a life of pure Jerusalem, pure Jobian faith, void of as much presuppositional thought, suggesting that to mix the two is a fail, that reason is a distraction to faith, and and faith must stand alone. So for Kierkegaard, there's a hierarchy in human existence and there are better and worse choices uh, and the fundamental choice all human beings must make is will I live for the pleasures of life as I describe them, not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or will I live and pursue the ethical life? Athens, Jerusalem, okay? So now the question becomes, by what standard do we decide is the best way to proceed? How do we decide? You know, does God or non-God say the best lived life is one that is made of logic and reason and pleasures? Or does God say the the best lived life are those who uh, pursue an ethical pursuit and they just listen to what I say is right and they follow it without any presuppositions? This is where Kierkegaard contributed greatly to the 20th century philosophy called existentialism, of which I am often 
in my mind, a Christian existentialist. And, and that's, and he's the, he's the founder of it. And as a, as a devoted Christian, he's the forerunner to even atheistic existentialism. He says, Kierkegaard, that individual human beings must make a choice. And he lays the choice out in a book that he called Either Or. Okay. Now that's a really important title. The book is fascinating. It's two volumes. It's either the ethical, excuse me, or it's the aesthetic. It's not both. The book was not called both. It's not called logic and reason and God's law. It's called either or. You either will choose to be a man or a woman who walks by your own reason, your own Athenian way of understanding the, the world, or you will be someone who chooses God's way. You will actually drop all presuppositions of reasons why you follow God's way and you'll make a leap of faith. That's a, that's a classic line that Kierkegaard developed, leap of faith, okay? No other reason you will jump to faith. And either the, either or, either the aesthetic life or the ethical life are your choices. Kierkegaard says we are faced with that choice and it must be either or, you can't choose both. If you do choose both, listen, then you are aesthetically driven. You've already made the decision. If you choose to mingle Athenian mindset with Jerusalem mindset, you have chosen to be aesthetically driven, is what he says. Kierkegaard says you must choose either the pleasure of the Athenian mindset of reason, logic, your own will and pleasure, or you choose God and for the simple reason it's God and you place your faith in him without any justification through your reasonable mind. You're either aesthetic or you're ethical. No in between, says Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard, that would be a compromise. All right? And this places all of those who read Kierkegaard, and it's very tough to read him. He's very aphoristic. Every line is a gem of wisdom. Unbelievable mind. That places all who read him in a sobering position. What makes Kierkegaard the father of existentialism is that he says that the choice that we make is without criteria. It's without any logical or reasonable reason. It's without criteria. There's no nothing, no standard by which anybody can reasonably act in their choice. And that's a horrifying reality as he demands that all of us make a decision without any presuppositional basis for making it. Criterionless choice is what Kierkegaard proposed. No real standard to support you. That is a grim reality for people. So we must make the choice, like it or not, we must decide. And then he cuts all of us off at our knees and, uh, uh, of relying on some sort of rationality, uh, uh, forcing us to make what he calls a leap of faith. You aren't going to jump over this chasm into God's arms because it makes sense to you. You're not going to jump over because you think it's the best way to live. 
You're not going to jump over because it reasonably makes sense that if you're here, there's also going to be an afterlife. And therefore, to please the being in the afterlife, you're going to jump to faith. No, 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 no. If you do any of that, you're in the Athenian camp. No. If you're going to be a true Christian, Kierkegaard says, you have to make a leap of unpresuppositional faith. Not based on any criterion. Zero procedure. And we all balk at this and, and, and claim otherwise, but Kierkegaard adamantly rejects pushback and says, no, he says, I have agonizingly realized that if someone really examines their decision to a life of aesthetics or a life of ethics, they are able to strip away all their presuppositional arguments for making their choice, and they are looking at silence Gap, gaping hole of darkness. He's pretty morose. And that hole does not give you any feedback. It is God saying, I'm not giving you anything. You will jump to me in faith or you won't. That's Kierkegaard's stance. To Kierkegaard, what is most agonizing about the choice we all have to make is that in the end, there is zero grounds for making it. Now, I know this goes against the culture of Christianity today because in the culture of Christianity, we have apologists, everything from Ken Ham making an arc and showing that, yeah, it's reasonable for this and it's reasonable for that and taking a Finian mindset like that pastor had when he could stood up here and said, I need to study Greek uh, history or Hellenistic philosophy or whatever he was saying. I mean, everybody is merging in faith and reason together. Kierkegaard said, nope. It's criterionless. I've thought it through. I understand. And if you want to try to compete intellectually with Kierkegaard, good luck. There are few more astute in the area of philosophy. Uh, He's on par equal to Nietzsche. So, uh, and Nietzsche, he, he certainly was a mind and a powerhouse of mind. Kierkegaard was right up there with him. All right. So having zero grounds to make it, it's in this space. It's in this space of standing on the chasm, looking into the darkness, hearing the silence of the, of, the, of the cosmos talking to you and saying nothing, and you making the decision, I'm going to follow God. Okay? That produces what existentialists call dread, angst, anxiety, nausea, Irony, absurdity, meaninglessness, disorientation. Those words are all themes of existentialism, whether Christian or atheistic. The themes of I exist, existentialism, of my own subjective experience to the world, forget Hegelian philosophy, I exist, I look into the chasm, I see no viable, reasonable Uh, logical uh, sense to follow God and I will do it anyway. And and, and Job, Kierkegaard says that is a Jobian experience of, of somebody accepting God by faith and choosing the ethical life. We're almost done. As a result of our having made the most important decision of our lives but having no governing star, no governing guide, we jump. And that could make us see the universe as a horrible, cold, sterile, unresponsive place 
but Kierkegaard says either or. Now we can see why he hated Hegel so much. Because Hegel was about synthesis. Let's take a little bit of uh, Hellenistic thought, Greeks. Let's take a little bit of Jerusalem. And let's decide if it's really reasonable to believe in a worldwide flood. And let's see if it's really reasonable to believe that God could become a man and die on a cross. That's not really logical. But we'll take that he was a good man. It's that mixing. Kierkegaard says, "Uh uh-uh, no. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Right? What is agonizing is we choose and we all choose. We have to choose. And if you say, I've chosen, I am going to live the life of pleasure seeking for myself through reason, logic, pursuing intellectualism, pursuing my hobbies, forgetting about God altogether. You've made your choice. All you, that, if you say, I, I'm just going to live that way. I'm not going to choose. You've made the choice of your nature. The choice has been made, but we all choose. And in that way, we stand in stark responsibility before our maker. He says, I've given you life. I've made you in my image. Now choose you this day whom you will serve. Kierkegaard says that the choice is made by jumping into a presuppositionalist chasm of darkness and silence and saying, I will follow God, even though it doesn't make one bit of sense to me. That's how morose he was. Really fascinating. Kierkegaard, as we wrap this up, was tortured utterly. Uh, He did not believe that most people had even the slightest grip of what it meant to be a natural, aesthetically driven person. So in the volume of Either Or, he endeavors to describe the natural condition that we're all in. And he says, what we do is as natural beings... We are filled with boredom. And so what we do is we run around from one thing to the next. It might be making money, going to your job, having children, feeding baby, baby food, and teaching them to climb. We do all sorts of things to keep ourselves from having to make that decision of the ethical life. We pursue blindly after these pleasures because we are so damn bored. He was so morose, he said God was bored. So he made people. People were bored. So they did this. And he goes on and on and on in his writings to talk about it's all the result of boredom. Right? That's how hard he is. Another brick in the foundation of existentialism. Boredom. This caused him to write, boredom is the root of all evil. Now you think about that phrase. Boredom is the root of all evil. And if you think about it, he's on to something superior to the notion that money is the root of all evil. He talks about boredom in such morose terms that he mocks those who have chosen the ascetic life. He says, you're so stupid. You go about and you're, you're trying to acquire more money. You're going to trying to acquire more girlfriends, more boyfriends, more food, more entertainments, more trips, more art, whatever it is that more books you read to make yourself smarter and smarter and smarter. He says, all you're doing is avoiding that silent space that faces you. Will you choose God? Will you make that leap of faith and say, Either I am going to be a natural woman or I am going to be an ethical woman and leap in faith. Pretty, pretty harsh, isn't it, right? 
And so he says that in the end, if you really, he saw himself, this is how Nietzsche, I mean, this is how Kierkegaard saw himself. I'm, I'll wrap it up. He saw himself as a clown going into a movie theater or not a movie theater, a theater. And he says the movie, the theater is on fire and the audience is there looking at the stage. And he gets up on the stage and he says the, the theater's on fire and everybody laughs. And he screams and shouts, the theater, it's on fire. And the more passion he throws into his argument that the theater is on fire and they're in danger, the more they laugh. That's how he describes what his views are to the world. I am telling you what it's like. And when I do it, you see me as a clown and all you do is laugh at me. When the reality is you're the ones who are really in danger. I'm going to escape out the back and not be consumed. So he was warning an either or of the hollow choices and no one took him seriously. His advice was for people to choose the or become a human in blind pursuit of, of pleasures. And it's here where I depart personally after all this with Kierkegaard. I, I have a basis for the way I see it. And it's Kierkegaard, which I studied. And my basis for the faith is not this black and white. God says this, you leap into a black chasm. God created us in his image. He, we are in partnership as he calls. He is not dogmatically saying to jump into blind faith. He gives us reasons. Now, Kierkegaard would mock me and laugh me off the stage for this, but I see that plainly through Scripture, that God did not leave us in a world void of any signals or signs. He said, here, come, as Isaiah says, let us reason together. What does that mean, Kierkegaard? What do you mean reason? Let's Athenian together. Let's figure this out while you're in this life I've given you of pleasures and other things. Come and let's reason together. God tells us to worship him with all of our heart and our mind, our soul. If you are thinking as an individual, then God wants your mind, your logic to come into play <coughs> when it comes to choosing him. So while I deeply resonate to Kierkegaard and what he had to say about many things in the faith, in particular about existentialism, I suggest that the faith is not pure Athenian, not pure reason and logic. That's just man. But it is looking at the ethical side and reasoning together with our maker. Through our free will, he will call to all. It's a two-way street. You are responsible for making the leap of faith, but it's not based on foundlessness. It's based on what God says he has given. His law, his cosmos, written, conscience, the testimony of other people, the written word, all, his son, all of those things gift to us. When you look at the cosmos itself, it's a presuppositional argument for there being a maker. So I just wanted to approach this. We're getting towards the last end of our uh, series on heart of the matter. We're going to be wrapping it up soon. And I had to get off my chest and get it in the can 
this idea of whether it's Athens or it's Jerusalem, we have believers who grip both today. I say it's a soft amalgamation of both with Jerusalem entirely taking the primary spot of the ethical life led by God, but with our response to God and what he gives us in reason and logic and wisdom. Remember to write us, Sean at Aletheia Media. Send us your name, your state or country in which you live so we can put you in our system for the changes that are coming.